Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look out to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're once again delving into the On The Money inbox to answer your questions. Thank you for sending them in and for all your feedback and comments. We read everything, so please do keep them coming on email, which is otm at ii.co.uk. Alice Guy, Interact Investors Head of Pensions and Savings, is in the studio with me to tackle the questions. So let's get straight to the first one, Alice, which was a question from Hillary, who asks, should I invest a large lump sum or should I split it up and invest it across the tax year? Okay, this is a really interesting one. And I think there's kind of two schools of thought on this one. I think if you look back historically, people have generally said, split it up and pay it in gradually. And that's something called dollar cost averaging, or we call it pound cost averaging. So that's the idea that if you do pay it in gradually, it will spread out any ups and downs in the stock market over that period. Whereas with a lump sum, there's a risk that you put it in at a high point and then the stock market crashes and you've potentially bought high, which is obviously not what you want to do. More recent research has actually shown that lump sum investing on average quite often outperforms. So if you think about it, if you're investing a lump sum at the beginning of each tax year, over time, you're investing at an earlier point than you would have been with dollar cost averaging. So there's kind of no right or wrong here. I guess in terms of if you're quite a cautious, risk averse sort of investor, then dollar cost averaging, you're not risking that you do happen to catch that high point. And I looked up some research on this and lump sum investing outperforms 75% of the time. So you're potentially getting a bit more because you're putting it at an earlier point with the lump sum, but there's that 25% risk that you could be down. So it depends which way you view it. Totally agree. In terms of regular investing, as you mentioned about uh, pound cost averaging or dollar cost averaging, what that gives people is peace of mind. So, you know, of course, it's extremely difficult to predict how the stock market's going to perform with any great deal of accuracy. So um, to try and time your entry into the market, it's very difficult to get your timing right. So, you know, if you invest regularly, that decision, it's taken out of your hands. I think the main thing is it removes the risk that you put your money into the market just before a really nasty dip. Which is like really gutting, isn't it? Yeah, and, and especially if you then convert those paper losses into real losses. If you lose your nerve and panic and pull your money out at the wrong time before you give stock markets the chance to recover. Looking back to the first quarter of 2020, when markets reacted very negatively to COVID-19 becoming a global pandemic, from peak to trough, if you, you, know, if you bought on 21st of February 2020, and you then sold on the 23rd of March 2020, and you invested in the FTSE All Share Index, say via a passive fund, then that index had fell by just over 33%. Mm, So, you know, if you you were a really unlucky investor, you could have seen your investment pot fall by a third over that very short period of time. So, yeah, I think in terms of peace of mind and, you know, sleeping sleeping easily at night, you're not going to have any nightmares, basically, if you are a regular investor. If you invest regularly, I think it helps instill discipline. So I think if you're making a commitment to set aside an affordable amount of money each month, then that's unlikely to affect your lifestyle as you will have decided, yeah, this is what I can afford to do. But as you mentioned, Alice, in terms of which is the most profitable strategy of the two, I think the general rule is that if markets are buoyant, then lump sum investing usually wins out over regular investing. 
think that there's always the opportunity to, to try and buy an out of form investment, potentially, you know, an investment trust on a pretty wide discount or again, relating back to funds. If it's a, a region or a part of the market that is out of form for a specific reason, you believe that that will change over time. Now, at the moment, there's a lot of professional investors that are sizing up UK smaller company funds because that part of the market has had a tough time over the past 18 months. But again, you might get your timing right. You might buy too early and it's very hard to time your decision making. So actually, it may be better to invest over a couple of months, basically, put a smaller amount in over, say, three, four, five, six months and hope that those investments will recover. Yeah, because you can sometimes get quite big swings even within a day, can't you? So even like you know, investing it once a week or something like that, then you're sort of doing a bit of both in a way, aren't you? Yeah, of course. There's always the risk of catching the proverbial fallen knife. And that's the danger of buying an undervalued investment. Hopefully over time it will recover. But as mentioned, you might be buying too early. Now, our next question was from um, Jeremy. Jeremy asked, should I switch to an income fund share class to provide retirement income? Just to start off with this one, when you're buying a fund, you might see multiple share classes. I think the first thing I'd like to point out is don't be bogged down by all the sort of jargon within these share classes. The best thing to do is to find the lowest cost version of the fund that you can find on Interactive Investor. And then your decision making is whether to go with the income share class, INC, or the accumulation share class, ACK. So what the income share class does it pays the income that's being generated by the underlying investments held in the fund to you. It goes to your account. Whereas the accumulation share class, what that does, that will automatically reinvest the dividends that are being generated by the underlying investments back into the fund, just automatically reinvested for you. So the income share class, it's suited for those who, who would like to draw an income. So for instance, if you're at retirement and you're using your investments and that investment income to help fund your lifestyle at retirement. Whereas in contrast, the accumulation share class, it's better suited for those who do not need the income today and are focused on building up their ISA and or SIP. If you don't need the income, I think you know, it's better to pick the ACK share class because that will automatically reinvest the dividends and you can benefit from the effect of compounding, which means an effect that you get returns on your returns. So in this case, you, both, you, you get both the capital returns and the reinvestment of those dividends. So coming back to your question, I think if you switch from the accumulation version to the income version, then that's going to be certainly a lot less work going forward as those income payments will be returned to you rather than reinvested. And those income payments, they'll represent the yield of your portfolio. So in other words, what the natural income is of the investments that are being held by the funds that you invest in. And for those that can, only taking the income that's being generated by the portfolio, that's viewed as a prudent strategy at retirement as it avoids eroding capital. Whereas if you're in the accumulation share class, then you're gonna to have to manually decide how much you would like to take out and sell some fund units. That's certainly doable, but I think you have to stay on top of your investments a lot more. And also you would need to think about potentially being prepared to reduce the amount of income you're taking out of the portfolio when stock markets fall sharply, because when stock markets fall and then the more fund units that are sold, the harder it becomes for the fund to regain value. Whereas with the income share class, if you're just taken the natural yield or the natural income of the portfolio, then the likelihood is, okay, that amount of income, it's gonna fall in, in severe stock market conditions. And of course you're gonna notice that as there'll be less money 
being paid to you via the income returns. But if you can accept a lower amount of income for a short period and patiently wait for stock markets to recover, then there's a greater chance of the value of your investments recovering. The next question comes from Glenn on the back of our previous Your Questions episode. So both myself and Alice, in that episode, we were talking about the pros and cons of ICEs versus SIPs, but we didn't mention LICEs at all, which Glenn pointed out. So Alice, could you run through what a LICE is first and then run through the pros and cons? So with LICEs, you can invest up to 4000 a year, and that's part of your ISA allowance. And they're available for people aged between 18 and 39. You can carry on paying after you're 39, but you have to open them before you turn 40. And then they have to be used for one of two things. So you can either use them to buy a home, but if you end up buying a home that's more expensive, you won't be able to use it potentially. So it's a home at the moment up to a value of 450000 If you don't use it to buy a home, it has to remain invested until you're 60. You can draw it out before that, but there's a potential penalty. So the way it works is when you pay in, say, £1,000, it's boosted up by the government, a bit like when you pay into a pension. So it's boosted up by 25%. So for every £100 you pay in, it will become £125. If you withdraw it before you turn 60 and you haven't bought a house, they'll take 25% out. So it sounds the same, but actually you lose out on 6% because if you think about it, 25% of 125 is slightly more than 25% of 100. So it ends up being £94 rather than 100. So there is a potential penalty if you don't end up using it for either of those reasons. So I think for me, like the biggest selling point of ISIS is the flexibility. So is it fully flexible? I'm not sure because there is this potential penalty if you end up needing that money sooner. You know, there are pros and cons and they are really good in certain circumstances, but it's just to be aware of those restrictions on it. And in terms of the number of ISIS that are available, there's six in total. I don't know if you agree, Alice, but for me, having that many is potentially overwhelming for people? Simplicity is the real selling point of ISAs. And I think a lot of people understand that you can pay up to £20,000. But at the moment, as you say, there's so many different variations. And I think it is potentially confusing for people. And there is an argument that um, lifetime ISAs, some people really like them, but they're not actually that widely used, as widely used as you might think. And there's an argument that it is potentially confusing for people. Our next listener did not want to be named, but did want to know, in terms of consolidating investments, what is the risk of just using one platform? I'll uh, hand the baton over to you, Alice, for this one. Well, I think the person who's asking this question is thinking, probably thinking about the financial services compensation scheme. So that is a scheme whereby if you're with a provider, be it a bank or a building society or an investment platform, and they were to go bust you would be guaranteed £85,000 back, you know, if, if your money had sort of got sucked up with them going bankrupt. In reality, this is really unlikely to happen. So we know that established investment platforms, for example, established banks and building societies, there are lots of rules in place to make sure that they've got good liquidity, they've got plenty of cash. And also, there are rules that client money has to be ring-fenced in a separate account. So you can't just have it all sloshing together with the business money. If you are worried, then you could have sort of 85,000 across various different providers just to be belt and braces about it. 
And in terms of consolidating investments, I mean, for me, it makes a lot of sense because it makes it a lot easier to stay on top of how much money you have in your pension. And it also helps you become you know, more engaged with where your pension is invested. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think the, the pros of consolidating for me outweigh the cons because it's so much easier to make investment decisions, understand how your portfolio is invested as a whole and to you know, think about your risk and how you want to spread your risk, whether you want to be slightly more adventurous in some areas of your portfolio or like you were talking about going for income strategies. And if you've got lots of little pots here and there, you know, you're losing out so much in terms of being able to control um, your assets and your pension or your ISA, whatever it might be. According to the Department for Worker Pensions, people can end up with as many as 11 different pension pots mm. nowadays. I mean, I thought it'd be, you know, high, but I didn't think it'd be as high as 11. And a lot of those might be small pots where people were just at an employer for a couple of years. And you, you're not realistically going to bother to be tinkering around with, you know, a really small pot. So I think that for me, consolidation just gives you that oversight, gives you that sense of control and ownership. Our next question is from Linda, who asks, is there such thing as a risk-free investment with a guaranteed return? The answer to this, sadly, is no. The reality is, with investing, as in life, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Every investment has an element of risk, and there's no guarantees that a return will be achieved. I think the thing to remember is to consider how risky an investment is. There's a spectrum of different levels of risk. So if there's a scale at one end, at the low, lowest risk end, there'd be cash. And then at the highest risk, risk end, there would be things such as like Latin American strategies, frontier market shares. I'd argue that cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, is a completely another level. Um, but maybe that could be a topic for another day. But also, you know, even with cash, it's a mistake to think that cash is risk-free. It's not because of the effects of inflation. But I think the good news is that, you know, investors, they can manage risk. You know, there's certain golden rules that investors can apply, such as, you know, invest for the long term, be diversified, potentially uh, drip feed money into the market through regular investments, as we spoke about earlier, and look to rebalance your portfolio as well, potentially twice a year. And also risk can be reduced by how an investor sets up his or her portfolio. So, I mean, I'd use the analogy about, you know, setting up a football team. You want to strike the right balance. You don't want to have every investment being adventurous, you know, being at one end of the pitch, being really offensive, because when markets take a turn for the worse, then your portfolio is likely to as well. So it's important to strike the right balance. And, you know, you could have some of your portfolio in assets and funds that are defenders, bonds, for example, and also cautiously manage multi-asset funds. They, they're, they're potential defenders in the portfolio. So these funds typically have less than 50% in shares, and they give investors diversification and, you know, they should be better equipped to weather a market storm compared to equity funds that, you know, invest in a particular region or have a global approach. What are your thoughts, Alice? What have I, what have I missed from, from that question? Yeah, I was thinking when you're talking about bonds, you know, they're often talked about as being lower risk. But we know recently we've seen that bonds have really tumbled in price and now arguably they're quite good value. But we can't necessarily think of those as being really low risk. And it just goes to show that you know, as you say, there's no nothing risk-free. I think it's probably important to balance and think about, you know, your needs in terms of what you're looking for from your portfolio. If you're starting to draw an income, then you're potentially going to want to have slightly lower risk than if you're still in that accumulation phase and you're a long time from retirement. I have heard some people argue that, well, that once you've retired, have 10% in cash 
and then gradually rebalance into cash so that you're not pulling out when the market's really down. But I think, you know, looking at that cash, if that's going to be a need for you in the next couple of years, then you don't really want it to fluctuate much at all, potentially. Whereas, you know, even if you've taken retirement, you're hopefully going to live for quite a while yet. And you've got to think about, you know, the fact that if you're going really low risk, your portfolio is going to stagnate over time. And you do want some more risky elements to make sure that it carries on growing. The point you've made about cash, I think, is a really good point. I've seen elsewhere that, you know, if you have a separate, like, cash pot, I, I mean, not everyone can do this, but if you have a cash pot that has one year or two years worth of everyday spending in cash, then that will give you the flexibility to postpone drawing income when stock markets fall in order to give your investments time and a chance to recover. Yeah, you've got a bit of a buffer. And also potentially, if you if you had millions, you could even sort of think, well, say I'm going to keep 10% in cash, then when the stock markets go down, actually you're then able to buy low with that little bit of cash as you rebalance. So um, it can be quite an interesting way of doing it. And I also like to think with cash about opportunity cost. I know this is perhaps an accountancy type thing, sort of showing my background here, but if you are investing in cash, you've got to think that where could I have put that money elsewhere? I could have invested that in something that would have potentially grown a lot more. And I think some people can get into the mindset of being very, very cautious, and then they're potentially losing out quite a lot in the long run. Our final question comes from David. This followed on from our recent Scottish mortgage episode. So David pointed out that we didn't mention yield at all. And that, that's a good point. Yeah, we didn't mention it, but Scottish Mortgage, it does have a yield. It's very low. It's currently 0.5%. And this you know, reflects that most investors are buying Scottish Mortgage more for the capital growth rather than the income potential. But it does pay a small amount of income. And it's also a dividend hero. It's increased its dividend for 40 years in a row. Um, so it does pay an income, but overall, you know, it's, it is more of a growth proposition rather than an income proposition. But yeah, I think it is worth pointing out and reminding uh, listeners that yes, yeah, Scottish Mortgage, it does have a small yield and it does pay a small dividend. Thank you again for your questions and for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email, which is otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. See you next week.